This is Dr. Ronald Hoffman. As you know, I'm a big proponent of CBD to tonify the endocannabinoid system. I've found that it helps people relax and can support restful sleep, a real breakthrough in herbal products. The CBD brand I take personally and recommend to my patients is Plus CBD from CV Sciences. And now I'm excited about a new natural wellness line from Plus CBD, CBD Calm and CBD Sleep. CBD Calm helps ease tension, soothe irritability, and contributes to a greater sense of contentment through a blend of Plus CBD's award-winning full-spectrum CBD, plus L-theanine, and 5-HTP. CBD Sleep aids occasional sleeplessness with CBD plus melatonin, as well as soothing magnolia bark extract and relaxing lemon balm so you can get the rest you need and wake up alert and focused. Both products are backed by science with clinically researched active ingredients. To learn more and to order, visit pluscbdoil.com Hoffman and use coupon code Hoffman30 for 30% off. That's pluscbdoil.com slash Hoffman. Welcome to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman. I think you're going to find this podcast a very, very useful resource for you personally, particularly if you've suffered from COVID, because uh, there is a phenomenon called long hauler syndrome or long COVID that is very concerning. Uh, it used to be that we were just concerned about uh, coming down with COVID, and if you made it through, fine. You weren't hospitalized. Uh, you know, you had a, a few bad days, no problem. But it turns out that a significant percentage of people uh, who make it through COVID are not home free. And that is very concerning. We are seeing this uh, more and more in our practices. And today we're going to talk uh, to uh, an expert on this subject, uh, Dr. Leo Galland. He's been a frequent guest on this program. Uh, he's done the work pulling this all together. We're very grateful for his tireless effort efforts in uh, helping us to understand uh, the origins of long COVID, the mechanism behind it, and, of course, with potential solutions. Uh, Dr. Galland is a pioneer in studying nutritional medicine. Uh, he's received international recognition for developing innovative nutritional therapies for autoimmune, inflammatory, allergic, infectious, and especially GI disorders. Uh, he is a graduate of Harvard University and the New York University School of Medicine, board certified in internal medicine. He has a practice here in New York City uh, for many decades, and he lectures frequently to health professionals. And he's the author of several books, The Allergy Solution, The Fat Resistance Diet, Super Immunity for Kids. I think we've interviewed him over the years uh, for all of those books. He's a columnist uh, for um, the um, Huffington Post, and he's hosted a PBS special. He's winner of numerous awards for clinical excellence. And he's one of my good medical colleagues. And I really consider him a mentor. Leo, it's a pleasure having you on Intelligent Medicine. And thanks again for doing the work on this, this very baffling subject. Yeah, well, Ron, really, thanks so much for having me on. Because, um, I mean, this is really an important area. And there's so much mis misinformation out there. Uh, and and so much that's alarmist, and that does not really attempt to look at the solutions. And the solutions are real. Um, uh, I mean, and they exist. And I mean, for example, 
at the uh, Alzheimer's Association International Conference recently. There are a couple of papers um, that were presented on Alzheimer's-like findings in people over the age of 60 who had had COVID-19. And, I mean, that's really scary. But the fact is, there are things that you can do about that. I think it's a real phenomenon. But there are answers and solutions. And this is not some overwhelming um, mystery disease. Um, and and I, that's the point that I really want to bring home. That it's, it's amenable to, to various solutions. And, and I think you know, Absolutely. Uh, something that we don't have to just uh, accept as a random event that is uh, irrevocable. Uh, it's got a name. It's called PASC, stands for Post-Acute Sequelae of SARS-CoV-2. I think we're just going to talk about long hauler syndrome or long COVID, okay? If that's yeah. okay with you. Oh, right. <laughs> Although the concept of PASC, um, which I think is correct, is that they're really, they're multiple syndromes. It's not just one. Mm-hmm. And what we've noticed the most are people who get sick with COVID-19 and then they get over the acute symptoms of the infection, but they're still not well. And originally, a year ago, you know, we, we were looking at 30 days or 60 days, but, and now it's three months before we'll say, okay, you have this long COVID syndrome. Um, there is another group of people who um, develop conditions that Number one, may not have been part of the acute COVID syndrome. They may be, um, they, they start later and sometimes they're not even symptomatic. That is the, the diagnosis of diabetes and high blood pressure occurs just as frequently after COVID-19, new diagnoses as does chronic fatigue. Um, and so people aren't calling the new onset of diabetes after having COVID long COVID, but it is definitely part of the syndrome of past. So COVID could be a precipitating um, event for other conditions that are not necessarily yeah, recognized it, as long COVID. Right. Absolutely. And, and the connection with diabetes and with high blood pressure makes sense. If you understand the pathophysiology, that is what happens biochemically in your body with COVID-19 and how that does not go away when you recover from the illness. And I mean, we're even seeing, or they're describing it, it's much less frequent, um, people who have no symptoms of COVID, um, who um, maybe a couple of weeks later begin to develop different symptoms. So, so it's so, not about the I mean, seriousness of your COVID. I mean, we can understand that somebody who's been in the ICU on a ventilator, uh, that uh, they're, they're more likely to have a serious uh, aftermath. But it is possible, and this is the scary part, to have a, a mild case, you know, maybe a little loss of taste or smell, and then experience, uh, you know, the full spectrum of symptoms of uh, long COVID. Right. And actually, loss of smell is one of the, um, risk factors for developing uh, forgetfulness after having COVID-19. And that has to do with the impact of COVID on the brain. Um, so, yeah, there are, I mean, this is very complex. This is not just one single condition, but there is a coherent 
um, physiology and biochemistry that produces almost all of the aspects of long COVID. Okay, um, we'll get to that in, in a minute because uh, before we, we get into the, the mechanism, how prevalent is this and can you describe you know some of the spectrum of, of problems that people experience with long COVID? Um, yeah, it's um, the, the smallest percentage in any study that was about 10% of people with COVID-19 uh, were still symptomatic 90 days after their diagnosis. Um, but most of the studies have shown it's closer to 25%. Whoa. And um, now I have to say in my own practice, it's probably around 3%. Mm-hmm. And I think that has to do with some of the measures that I started to recommend to my patients um, for dealing with COVID-19. Because when I start looking into the into what's known, what the scientific research says about long COVID and, and how you can reverse that turns out to be the same kinds of things that I was recommending for preventing and mitigating the impact of COVID-19. Well, that, that's a very the encouraging message because, you know, we know about the comorbidities that make COVID worse, make you more likely to get sick or very sick or get in the hospital or die. And those are, you know, the, some of the traditional comorbidities, overweight, uh, age, uh, 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 hypertension, diabetes, right. uh, uh, frailty, and, and so respiratory problems and so on. Uh, but it, it's actually been suggested, and I think you're a bit of a mythbuster on the subject, that long COVID is random, that it's, it's not really a merit system, that it can afflict the young and the healthy. And, you know, it's kind of like uh, rolling the dice well, when you get COVID. Well, it can, but a lot of that is is based on sort of anecdotal reports and not systemic analyses. The systemic analysis, a large one from the UK, found that um, that basically that that the following were risk factors for long COVID. Number one was having symptomatic infection with five symptoms of COVID nineteen, or five or more. Number two was being a woman. Mm. Number three, over the age of 50. Mm-hmm. So I, I would say from that, the highest risk group are women over the age of 50. Number four was obesity. And number five was asthma, mm. which is not generally... Um, it, asthma as a um, pre-morbid morbid condition in people with COVID-19 is... Um, there's a lot of conflicting evidence. Is it um, bad... Um, is it actually protective? And I think that has to do with the medications that asthmatics use. Hmm. Um, the steroids are probably protective. But having asthma um, increases the risk of long COVID. And I think I can explain um, why that happens. Um, but it's also been noted there are about 200 symptoms that are now being attributed to long COVID. And the that's called the phenotype. And... Um, the there are different risk factors for different symptoms. As I mentioned, loss of smell is a risk factor for uh, forgetfulness. Because mm-hmm. the, the olfactory nerve is just basically a conduit to the brain, and the, and the virus that right. kills the and, olfactory nerve may travel uh, into the brain. Uh, right, it does. 
probably along that route. And there was there was a study. There were two studies done in the United Kingdom that really motivated me to put out some of the um, material information that I did um, because they were they were actually kind of scary. And one was a study of MRIs. Now, in the UK biobank database, there were about 40,000 people who had had MRIs fairly shortly before the pandemic. And so the researchers there offered a group of them um, the opportunity to have a repeat MRI uh, at six months to a year later. So, so they had, they had the a baseline. Group, they had a they had an ordinary MRI. They had a you know, baseline, before. right? And then they could comp- right. and then they could see if reason. it changed. And what they found that about four hundred people who had tested positive for COVID nineteen in the interim, and four hundred people who had not, and they matched them for age, sex, ethnicity, and the interval between the scans. And what they found was that the people who had had COVID nineteen had shrinkage in certain brain areas, loss of gray matter, which is Whoa. loss of brain cells. Wow. These were areas that were, that are linked to um, the sense of smell and the sense of taste, suggesting, but they were not, but they were areas that didn't just impact smell and taste. There were areas that were involved in um, visual memory uh, or visual uh, attention to visual details and uh, verbal problem-solving skills. Yikes. Um, now, there was a separate study in the UK in which a large group of people were given um, online um, cognitive testing, um, and uh, thousands and thousands of them. And then they took a group of people who had had COVID-19, and they matched them with a group of people who had were matched for age, sex, ethnicity, um, education level, um, and various underlying conditions. And they found that the people who had COVID-19 had a number of um, deficits in higher cognitive function compared to the other group, and most pronounced for two areas. One is um, is complex decision-making, and the other is spatial memory. Now, spatial memory and attention to visual detail, pretty closely related, and complex decision-making and verbal problem-solving are pretty closely related. So it seems to me that these functional deficits match up pretty well with the anatomical loss of neurons that were found in the MRI study. And this looks pretty um, cohesive. This is not like just random findings. Um, So there is a lot of attention to be paid to what happens in the brain as a result of COVID-19. Wow. Um, And I think there are definite solutions. So, so obviously it affects the brain and people complain of brain fog. They can't, they have difficulty focusing. They have difficulty performing work. They have fatigue. What are some of the other symptoms that uh, people report with long COVID? Um, okay. Well, the, the most brain fog and fatigue, loss of smell and impairment of taste are probably the most common, but there's also shortness of breath, especially with activity, sometimes at rest, chronic cough, chest pain. 
Um, and then a whole range of symptoms from allergic reactions to skin rashes, pain. Uh, in fact, people who have pain, who had pain from one reason or another before COVID-19 were much more likely to have pain increase after COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, the various allergic symptoms may start uh, different kinds of immune problems, sleep disturb- disturbances, hair loss in about 30%, mm-hmm. um, and um, abdominal pain, diarrhea, not uncommon, um, weight loss or weight gain, uh, joint and muscle pain, um, I, the depend, nausea, um and now, not all of these symptoms are necessarily the result of COVID itself. Some of them may be the result of treatments. Mm-hmm. One of the things we know about people who get sick with COVID-19 is that there are disturbances in the gut microbiome um, after COVID-19. Now, and these persist. Um, uh, for one thing, the virus itself will persist in the stool for weeks after the respiratory swabs become negative. Right. That, that was initially not reported that, in China, and there was a big concern that, you know, if you flush the toilet in a in a public bathroom or, or use the hand sanitizer, right. that you're going to spray uh, COVID virus particles, uh, you know, in the air. Right. But it turns right. out now, that's maybe, not how it's transmitted, but it, it persists in the gut. Right. It does persist in the gut. And there's a lot of controversy as to whether it's still alive and infectious or not. The thing is that that even the dead virus is capable of causing damage mm-hmm. because the, the spike protein of the virus binds to this vitally essential enzyme called ACE2. And when it binds to it, it starts to destroy its activity. So, so to, Even per, to paraphrase, you know, virus. to paraphrase a popular, uh, a pop culture reference, Megan Trainer said uh, it's all about the base. You're saying it's all about the ace, the ace two specifically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you can use all, you can use that by yeah, the way in one of your presentations. Okay, <laughs> that'll make a good okay, slide. Okay, thank you. All right. Um, yeah. So, um, in fact, one of the ace two. Um, before we even get into the gut and the role of ACE2 in the gut, the most important place for ACE2 functionally in the body is probably in the blood vessels. And because the the um, arteries and veins and capillaries, their lining is loaded with ACE2. And ACE2 plays a major role in the health of blood vessels. And as the research has made it really clear, uh, COVID-19 looks like a respiratory infection, it enters the body through the nose, uh, and it does that because there's a lot of ACE2 in the nose that it binds to, um, but it really acts like a disease of blood vessels. And, um, and disturbances in blood flow have been identified after infection is cleared in large numbers of people including healthy young adults. There were these studies um, that were done um, looking at arterial stiffness 
in all the major arteries, the aorta, the carotid arteries, the femoral arteries that go to the legs, and in healthy young adults after COVID-19. And there's a, there's a loss of flexibility in the arteries. Mm. Um, we don't know how long that lasts. Um, the, um, and in people who have been in the hot, actually, in people who have been hospitalized independent of severity of disease, um, those changes can last for um, at least 90 days. Um, so, so that the found, in, from my perspective, after really thoroughly reviewing all of the research, loss of ACE2 is the foundation for virtually all the complications of COVID-19, certainly the most common. So, so, we, so what you're saying is somebody, we yeah. have a target, you know, that if we understand the physiology, sometimes it sounds like just dry, you know, biochemistry, but it actually, in discovering that there is some uh, unifying uh, defect that occurs with long COVID, this provides us with a target, a target for medications, a target for perhaps uh, nutraceuticals or lifestyle measures, and that's, I think, where you've done a deep dive. Yeah, right. Uh, I, um, yes, I've looked at that as deeply as I've been able to. And starting in March of 2020, uh, when the research came out indicating that ACE2 was the receptor for SARS-CoV-2, just as it had been for the SARS epidemic um, 15, 16 years ago. And, um, and so my initial protocol that I developed and discussed with you was oriented towards mitigating the severity of infection by supporting ACE2. And I believe that that is the reason that patients of mine who have been following that protocol mm -hmm. at the time they got infected um, have shown a pretty low rate of long COVID compared to all of the published studies. So, so that's empowering is that uh, long COVID is, doesn't appear to be random. Uh, there is uh, somewhat of a merit system when it comes to fending off long COVID. There are measures that can empower people to uh, reduce the likelihood that they're going to come down with it. Uh, that's what I think. I mean, without, without a controlled prospective study, it's really hard to know whether any of the observations that a person makes are going to hold up. Um, but we don't have the luxury of doing those things. And these are very safe measures that, um, uh, that will promote general health. And, and just to give you an example from the dietary perspective, um, there's, um, a really interesting study that was recently published and that uh, I talk about in this video in, in, in that I In June, created. I think. It just came out in June, I think. Yeah, just came out. Very, um, a very well done study by top researchers, um, Johns Hopkins, Stanford, Harvard, and Columbia. And what they did was they took a group of healthcare workers, several hundred of them, who had had COVID-19, and they had now recovered. Um, and they um, separated them into those who had mild or minimal symptoms and those who had moderate to severe disease. Um, and they were mostly doctors and they were mostly men. 
Um, but there were a number of women in there. And the fact that they were mostly male doctors actually gives a certain um, uh, coherency um, to the study because a, a lot of the, like in terms of educational level and mm-hmm. other risk factors, right. um, they're, they're going to be pretty Relatively prosperous, relatively well-educated, etc. Right, right, right. What they found, um, the way they reported the data I didn't think was optimal. I, I had to go in and really dig through it. And my conclusion from their data is that a 40% increase in vegetable consumption. Oh, yeah, so here's the other part of it. They used all these standardized tools to look at the people's diets in the year before they got COVID Mm -hmm. Um, and from multiple perspectives. And these were things that have been validated in um, large cross-sectional and um, prospective studies as being meaningful indices of what people are actually eating. Um, The main conclusion that comes out of this is that a 40% increase in the consumption of vegetables produced a 72% decrease in the likelihood of having moderate to severe COVID as opposed to mild to minimal. And then they looked, you know, I mean, I think that's, I mean, if there was a drug that did that, (laughs) do you know how that would be marketed? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. Um, Now, the people in the, high vegetable, and it wasn't a huge amount of vegetables. It was like 14 servings a week that made, you know, as opposed to 10 servings a week. Um, so it wasn't, uh, and these people were not total vegans or vegetarians, although they did describe their diets as being plant-based. Mm-hmm. But they had eggs and milk and even a little meat and poultry and, and a fair amount of fish. They ate less sugar than the other groups, and but not all the other groups and less alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, but but then the, the most surprising figure was there was a group of these healthcare workers who described their diets as low carb, high protein, which is you know very trendy. Mm-hmm. Keto, they had keto almost style. four yeah keto type. They had almost four times as high a risk of developing more severe COVID nineteen than the people who described their diets is plant-based hmm. or plant-based with fish. Wow. So it's not just about the sugar. Um, it, it, those, when, when you look at the analysis of the low-carb diets, there was more meat and more poultry and fewer vegetables. Mm-hmm. And the, cha- the changeover was kind of like the plant-based people were eating more beans and nuts and seeds instead of meat and poultry. Mm-hmm. Now, that kind of diet supports ACE2 activity as well having a higher concentration of antioxidants. Okay, I'm going to, I'm going to stop you right there because we, we're going to continue on this, on this subject. Talk about some of the measures that uh, we can apply to long COVID. Uh, our guest, Dr. Leo Galland, uh, as your listeners know, we divide our podcast into two parts. Uh, despair not because uh, we're going to talk for as long as we have to on this subject. We may uh, provide some additional content uh, at the end of our usual uh, two-part podcast. So uh, we'll be back in just a moment. Stay with us. I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and this is the Intelligent Medicine Podcast. <laughs> 